Our passage today comes from Luke chapter 22, verses 24 to 30. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Let's pray. Our Father, it's so good to be with your people, gathered around your throne, worshiping you with one heart and with one voice. Lord, to know that the union that we share is one wrought in the finished work of Christ. Lord, the people that we are, the, the, the new life that we have, the hope that we know, this is all a testimony to your goodness, to your grace, to the power of the gospel at work in our hearts. Father, we praise you. We praise you for your redeeming love. We come asking that you would prepare our hearts as we hear your word, that you would use it to shape us for your glory, impress it upon us. God, change us, challenge us, convict us, encourage us. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Five headings that I would like to hang our thoughts on today as we examine this text together. First, we see the disciples' dispute. The disciples' dispute. Look at verse 24 with me. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, if you were with us last week, you might Recall how this word also in verse 24 ties us back to the passage that we considered last week where Jesus talks about the one who would betray him, Judas Iscariot. Jesus has just revealed that his betrayer was in their midst and indeed had his hand on the table with him. And it was upon hearing that news that the disciples immediately set to work questioning one another as to who it could be. Well, then immediately we find this other debate going on as well, considering amongst themselves which of them was to be considered the greatest. 
So we can look at this passage and we can see that there was something disastrous, something truly catastrophic going on with Judas that night. But as the text so clearly demonstrates for us, there was also something grievous and tragic happening in the hearts of the other 11 as well. And the nature of their argument becomes even more startling when you look at the context in which we find them carrying on about these things. Uh, Jesus has just uttered the words of institution. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He has just told them about how he was going to lay his life down for his disciples, giving them this awesome display of his self-sacrifice pictured in the bread and the cup. And then what immediately follows? Do they marvel at, at the vast heights from which Christ has stooped that he might make them his own? Do they, do they glory in the fact that poor sinners like themselves should be included as the object of, of, of Christ's redeeming love? Think about Psalm 40, for example, where, where David, he, 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 he simply stands in awe that God should spy out a man like him. He says, as for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. The Lord takes thought for me. The one true God condescends and has dealings with someone like me, a poor and needy man. That's cause for rejoicing indeed. But the disciples are not lost in, in that rejoicing. They're not lost in the, the wonder and glory of knowing Christ and being known by him, they are lost in themselves. They're taken up with matters of self-promotion and self-interest and self-glory. And it's not just thoughts that the scriptures let us into. It's not just the internal machinations of the mind that uh, are going on within their heads here. It is open rivalry as to who should come out on top. Bear in mind, brothers and sisters, they are still in the upper room. They're still seated around the Lord of glory, the Im image of the invisible God by whom and for whom all things were created. And instead of being mesmerized by him, instead of being caught up that in the counsel of God's will, they of all people should find themselves numbered among those who would be present there with the promised Messiah in the final hours leading up to his death, they're fixated on their glory, on their fame and renown. While Jesus prepares to die, his closest followers jockey for supremacy. Well, here is something we must face looking at a text like this, dear ones. The disciples' error and their folly that seems so obvious and so egregious when you stand back and look at it from our perspective, almost laughable in our context, it actually has bearing on us. 
Texts like this, in other words, were not preserved so that we could stand back and shake our heads at others, but so we could see ourselves more clearly. I wonder whether you can see yourself on some level here relishing the idea, actually, of coming out in first place. Loving the esteem of men more than we do the esteem of God. That feeling of swelling with pride when we are recognized and praised and lauded by others. Looking strategically for positions that will lead to our recognition. Not to the glory and recognition of Christ but we seek self-glory. Instead of looking for those paths of lowliness and humility and service that our Savior walked, we also seek paths of self-glory and self-interest. We might not sit around and dispute as to which of us is the greatest, but these same dynamics are present in our hearts. They're still in our hearts Because we're all glory seekers. We crave it for ourselves. And apart from the regenerating work of the Spirit of God and Him ruling over our hearts, the flesh is always going to be doing this. The flesh is always going to be seeking after self-exaltation, not Christ-exaltation. Think about James and John, for example. In Mark chapter 10 they come up to Jesus with a request, just one little favor to ask of him. Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Sure, you can have the crown, but let me see how I can elbow my way in here and find this place of supremacy and power and prestige. And apparently, this was a burning desire, not just with, with James and John, but in the family, because Matthew records his mother coming up and asking the same thing as well. Jesus, I want to see my boys exalted to this place of honor. What do we want for our children? What, we, what do we desire for the, the ones that the Lord has granted to us? Well, how does Jesus address his disciples then and now? Well, he says this spirit of envy and glory and self-interest is paganism's pattern. That's number two. This is paganism's pattern. Verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Jesus says this is the world's way of thinking. Recognize it for what it is. This is how an unbelieving world functions, pushing to the front of the line, uh, puffing out our chest, making a show out of rank and position, uh, using whatever titles we may happen to have to push others down. That's the idea behind exercising lordship. The kings of the Gentiles, those who don't know the Lord, they do everything that they can to to make sure that everyone under them uh, knows that they have dominion over them. Those in authority over them are called benefactors. Everything is about 
titles. Benefactor is an honorific title. It's just another way that someone in a position of authority could remind those who are under them, you're indebted to me. You owe me. I'm a benefactor. Not that God has placed me in this position for the blessing and good of others, but for the sake of my glory, for the sake of personal gain. Well, this is the world's way of thinking. Jesus says, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. This is number three, Christ's contrast. Here is the alternative path that the people of God, that we as those who follow after the Lord Jesus Christ are to walk in. Let the greatest among you become as the youngest. Now the youngest here would be those who in any other context would be the kind of people who would have the, the, they would be the least likely candidate for holding a position of power. For, for ruling over someone else. Think of a child, a little child. He has no rank, no title, uh, no kingdom over which to reign, no entourage following after him. Forget all of those things, says the Lord. Let the greatest among you become as that little child, as the youngest. Who are the ones among us uh, living for the Lord, entering into others' lives, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than themselves, looking not to their own interests, but also to the interests of others, doing all of this without title, without recognition, without glory, without claim to fame. They're the greatest. They're the greatest in the eyes of God. And they're to be considered the greatest in the eyes of the people of God as well. What about leaders? What comes to mind when you think of the word leader? What sort of qualities and characteristics and personality traits spring to mind? Jesus says, let the leader be as one who serves. Now you notice here that, that Jesus is not saying there's no such thing as leaders. Some Christians have gotten that idea through, through, throughout the history of the church that the knowledge of Jesus Christ flattens all distinctions whatsoever in the church and there shouldn't be any kind of leader or, or hierarchy in the church. But Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say there shouldn't be leaders. What does he say? He says that as we think about this principle of spiritual leadership, and I'm not talking, and I don't believe Jesus is talking here just about church office holders, but spiritual leaders, the greatest among you, he says the kind of leaders he would commend are those who serve. The point isn't that there isn't structure or leaders in the church, but it looks completely different from what you would expect to find in the world. Leaders in the church of Jesus Christ are servants. Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is those who serves. 
Now, I want to ask you, brethren, what are your aspirations in life? What are your goals? What sort of ambitions and aims do you have? Young people, what do you want to be when you grow up? How, how often do you have folks ask you that? Is there, is there good things to be thinking through? It's a good question to be wrestling with. Well, have you factored in what the Lord Jesus commends in your purposes and goals? Are we the kind of people who think to ourselves, however I may rank in the eyes of the world, whatever titles I may or may not attain to, I want to be the most profitable servant in the house of the Lord that I can possibly be for the sake of his name. What might the Lord accomplish through us if that was our ambition? If, if that was every single one of our goals, it doesn't matter whether I am remembered or forgotten. I want to be the greatest that I can be, not as the world accounts things, but as my Savior does. And so I want to live the way he lived. I want to live after him. That brings us to number four, the Christian's case study. The Christian's case study, number, uh, verse 27. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves? Children, is, who, who's the greatest? The one who reclines at the table or, or the one who goes around carrying food, serving? Well, of course, it's the one who reclines. It's the one who serves. But then what does Jesus say? What do we find him doing? Well, it was in this same upper room that, that the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, gladly abased himself and washed his disciples' feet. He took up the basin and the towel. Now, foot washing, you, you may know, is, is something that was usually reserved for the lowest of the low. In some cases, um, there, there are records that suggest that not even Jewish slaves would be allowed to participate in, in foot washing for their masters, that they would go and find a Gentile slave to do such a menial, lowly task. And yet in the hour of his death, the king of glory is among them as the one who serves. He served even his enemies. He washed even Judas Iscariot's feet. Jesus is the unique substitute for sinners. He is the one mediator between God and man, but he is also our example. He came to serve by giving up his life as a ransom for many, but he's also this, this paradigm for all faithful, genuine Christian ministry. He told his disciples, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Do you know what Jesus said to James and John when they asked that question about sitting at his side in his glory? 
He said, you don't even know what you're asking. You do not even know what you are asking. Those who dream about being lifted up in the kingdom of God don't know what they're asking. Because the way up is down in the kingdom of God. In the economy of God, the path to exaltation is a path through humility and loneliness and service and suffering and affliction, which is exactly where Jesus takes us next in this text. Christ's answer to those who are battling these desires for self-promotion and pride is really twofold. On the one hand, he says, keep your eyes on me. I am among you as one who serves. Remember that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. I'm among you as one who serves. The other part we see in verses 28 to 30. The Redeemer's reward. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel." Jesus encourages them with this promise. He says, you, you, you have weathered some difficulties and some trials with me. Opposition and rejection and persecution. Isn't this wonderful? Think about who he is talking about here, talking to here. Think about the ones he is addressing, what they're talking about, and then how he responds. Are these the same ones who are presently arguing about who's the greatest? Are these the ones that he has had to chide at times because of their, their lack of faith or um, they've need to be, needed to be corrected because of their, their foolishness and ignorance at times? They are, but our Lord is not the kind of scrutinizing taskmaster that can only see our faults. He doesn't rebuke them. He looks at them in the midst of all of this, in the midst of their, their selfish squabbling, and even as they bicker and dispute, he goes on serving them. He continues to exemplify the same spirit that he is calling them to. These foolish people don't stop being objects of his love. That's good news. J.C. Ryle said, never had a master such poor, weak servants as believers are to Christ, but never had servants such a compassionate and tender master as Christ is to believers. Jesus looks at them and he delights in the evidences of God's grace. You have remained with me in my trials. And then he promises them this gracious gift that there will be exaltation to, to come. In the same way that the father has assigned a kingdom to the son, the, sign, the son will assign a kingdom to, the, to his own where they will eat and drink at Christ's table. They'll sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So the, the 12 apostles 
together with, with, the, with the prophets, forming together the, the, the foundation of the household of faith, they will bear this special responsibility in the establishment of Christ's kingdom when it is consummated in the new heavens and earth. And this is a word that has specific application to them, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But this principle... This larger principle of humility and service now with exaltation to come applies to all of the people of God. In Matthew's account, for example, right after Christ's statement about what the apostles can expect at the consummation of the kingdom, he immediately turns and he makes application to everyone who would come after him. Listen to what he says, Matthew 19. Jesus says, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. There's the principle again. It's the cross before the crown. Now, as we think about this, I I do think there's an important qualification that needs to be made. Don't get the idea that life in the kingdom of God means menial, insignificant work today, and then greatness to come. Jesus is not saying that. He's saying that this is true greatness in the kingdom of God, to be the one who serves, to become as the youngest. So church, while the Last Supper is revelatory in terms of what it brings to light about Judas, it also exposes so much about Christ's true disciples. It shows the great disparity that can exist in the heart of of someone who knows the Lord Jesus savingly and then what it looks like to live for him on the other. There's still a vast amount of ground to cover in terms of Christian discipleship and sanctification that circulated around these themes of self-denial and serving others. Well, surely that, exa- that, 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 that gap exists in our hearts as well. Surely we have much to learn about following Christ and patterning our lives after him as well. God's good work of salvation, uh, he has begun, but he has not yet completed, completed it in us. So how do we put flesh on this big idea of following Christ by taking the form of a servant. What does that look like in practical terms? What does the kind of true greatness Jesus is talking about look like in action? I want to use the time that we have remaining just to sketch out four ideas, four tangible ways we could grow in serving one another. I started off with 20. You can thank me later. We're going to look at just four briefly. Pulled right from the pages of Scripture. Maybe the Lord would be pleased to use just one or two of these 
um, to challenge your heart, something you could latch onto and put into practice. Number one, comes right from Romans 12 and verse 10. You heard it earlier. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another by showing honor. If we are going to compete with one another, let's compete in this. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in love, in preferring one another above ourselves. That's what showing honor means. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. How do you, how do you fight the impulse of your heart to want to be considered great in the eyes of the world? How do you wage warfare against that desire present in every single one of our hearts to get glory for ourselves? Well, on the one hand, we need to humble ourselves in humility. And then on the other, there's this call to prefer one another in love. You consciously regard others as more significant than yourself. And then you walk in light of that. You, you actually think about what their interests are, about what their needs are, about what their weaknesses are, about what their cares are, about what burdens they're shouldering, and then you pray for grace and wisdom to attend to those things. You become as a servant, as the youngest. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is the kind of truth that will bind us together and will keep us from clamoring on top of each other to try to get to the top keeping before us the great love with which we have been loved, and then seeking to do likewise. In the second century, you may have heard this before, Tertullian reported how pagans would observe Christians and would frequently say something along the lines of this, see how they love one another. There was something distinctive, something remarkable, literally remarkable, about the way that they related to one another. That's what knowing the one who came not to be served, but to serve means. That's what it does to a man. It changes the way that we relate to one another. It calls us to lives of self-denial and self-sacrifice. I wonder whether your relationships within the body of Christ are marked by something that could approximate brotherly affection. Love one another with brotherly affection. One of the things that always strikes me when I read passages like that in the Bible is how the scriptures actually command our affections. Love one another with brotherly affection. In a way that runs so much against the grain of our contemporary way of thinking, the scriptures command that we love. Jesus does not say, okay, so you've got natural affinity with this person. Link up with them. Oh, that person really rubs you the wrong way. Go and find someone you've got something in common with. No, love one another 
with brotherly affection, go out of your way to honor and respect one another, outdo one another in that way. Now, this this brings up several issues to our attention. For one, it, it requires that we actually incline our hearts to one another. But more fundamentally than that, it prompts me to ask, are we pursuing the kinds of relationships in the body where we can fulfill and receive this kind of ministry? To put it in more simpler terms, do you have the kind of relationships that will allow you to even know the opportunities there are for service and love and showing honor within this spiritual family? Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Number two, seek to show hospitality. If you would say to the former question, you know what, I've got some room to grow there, here's a good place to begin. Seek to show hospitality. Romans 12 and verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Be strategic when you think about this. Make it a priority in your life. 1 Peter 4 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling, the Apostle Peter says. See, he knows what often accompanies the exercise of hospitality. You do not have to say amen. He knows what often accompanies the exercise of hospitality, the opening up of our homes, or even just opening up our hearts to one another, grumbling. Well, that is not reflective of the gospel, is it? Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God, Romans 15 and verse 7. Do so with joy in your hearts, just as God in Christ has welcomed you freely into relationship, you do so also. Extend the right hand of Christian fellowship with those that you don't know. Number three, determine to cherish the brethren in your heart, investing yourself in their spiritual well-being in life and death. Determine to cherish the brethren in your heart, investing yourself in their spiritual well-being in life and in death. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 3, talking about the deep commitment that he has toward them, I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. This was no professional arrangement or attachment that he had to the church. They were in his hearts, in his heart. He was united to them in faith, and so he had a vested interest in their good, their spiritual vitality, their perseverance in the faith, so much so that their loss would be his loss and their gain would be his. Let me let you hear what he says this time to the church in Philippi. And and listen closely to the the spiritual logic and how Paul puts it here. This is Philippians chapter 2 and verse 19. He says, I hope 
in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. You see the connection Paul makes there in those couple of verses. You see how he links the interests of Christ with the welfare of the church. He says, I have no one like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. And then he adds, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So the interest of Jesus Christ can be understood as the welfare of the church. He equates the one with the other, and by doing so, he is issuing a challenge in a roundabout way. He is challenging the brethren in Philippi to take up Christ's interests as well. To be concerned about their welfare. Timothy was a a young man who Paul describes as standing alone in terms of his spiritual concern for the souls of men. How did Paul know that? I trust Timothy would have been regularly praying for the church, interceding on their behalf. He would have been asking Paul, can you tell me, how are they doing in the Lord? Are they growing? Are they receptive to the word? What about so-and-so who received the Lord Jesus Christ? Have they been faithful in worship and in service and in whatever else it might be? Paul was in the same boat. He, he said, I, Philippi, I'm, I'm eager to be cheered by news of you. He's invested in their spiritual well-being. So you envision this scene, Timothy, who's concerned about Christ's interests, which means, again, he's concerned about the, the welfare of the church. He's going to go and he's going to investigate. He's going to ask loving, direct questions of the church. How are you doing in the Lord? Where are you struggling? How can I pray for you? What burdens are you bearing? What, what valleys are you walking through? What victories have you known? He's going to seek out to, to know every way that he can come alongside of them. That's what we want to be about. We want to be getting to the heart of things in our conversations with one another. Matters concerning the soul, the things of God, the truth of God's word, resisting every temptation to stay on the surface level of things in our conversations with one another. There is no better way we can serve one another than by this, investing ourselves in the spiritual welfare of one another. That means older saints... Seek out those younger in the faith with an eye toward their spiritual maturity. Younger saints, seek out those older in the faith. Look for ways you can serve them in tangible ways. Are there there widows? Are there seniors around you that you can serve? Are there those in the flock that God has already put right next to you that that you you can rejoice with those who rejoice? and weep with those who weep. No matter who you are, 
Be a friend to brothers and sisters in Christ. Two are better than one, for they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Too many Christians deceive themselves into thinking that one is better than two. That they're better off away from the fellowship of the saints. You need the church and the church needs you. Settle it, therefore, in your heart to cherish the brethren, invest yourself in their spiritual well-being, especially that spiritual aspect of their well-being. Finally, number four, pray for grace to go where your flesh does not want to go, to serve where there is no limelight, to minister where no one will see you, and where you'll receive no glory from men. If we will begin by considering those lowly places of ministry where no one will see our service, where few will voluntarily go, we'll do well. We will be on the right path. If that is our starting point, the opportunities for service in the kingdom of God are wide open. Whether that means quietly seeking out those who you know are on the fringe of fellowship, staying late to pick up chairs, cleaning the bathrooms, making meals for those who are sick, carrying one another's burdens by meeting material needs, opening your home to counsel with the downtrodden, visiting with the sick and the sore, sitting down with young women, young moms, folding laundry, praying, most gladly spending and being spent for the sake of souls. In all of this, Jesus is glorified. And we will so prove to be his disciples. We won't make ourselves disciples by doing these things. It is faith alone in Christ alone by which we come to be, be the Lord Jesus Christ's own. But we will demonstrate, illustrate, and validate the power of the gospel in our lives. Lead by way of service. It will be costly to your pride. It will be costly to your time and your resources, but it will be, bring glory to Jesus Christ and it will demonstrate that you are his. We have a savior who gave everything for us. We have a savior who is worthy of it all. After washing his disciples' feet, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master." Nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Inasmuch as you hear his voice, treasure up these words in your heart, then act on them. Set to work in love and service to one another, and you will be blessed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for how it challenges and convicts our hearts. Lord, we love your church, O oh God, the people you have called, 
the church, our blessed Redeemer, saved with his own precious blood. Jesus, thank you that you're not ashamed to call us brothers, that you have come to identify with us in the greatest way imaginable by taking on flesh and blood, that you came to serve an unworthy people. Lord, we pray that you would grant us your grace, that the word that has been spoken today might indeed dwell in us richly. Lord, that we would take these truths to heart. God, that the, the, the love that we share would grow more and more, that the works of our lives would redound your praise. God, when we are tempted to, to be indifferent and cold toward one another, convict us. Remind us of, of Christ's sacrifice. God, remind us of what he has done, not only to redeem us, but uh, which also shows us how we are to regard one another. Emptying ourselves, taking up the form of a servant. God, we acknowledge we, we do not love our brothers as you have called us to. Often, Lord, instead of denying ourselves and serving others, we, we isolate ourselves and we serve ourselves and we, we use so many excuses to justify the love of self that is present in our hearts. And so today, God, we cast ourselves on your mercy. We thank you for the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all of our sin. God, our great desire is that the power of the gospel would be clearly displayed in the fellowship of this church. That through our love and our service one to another, all men would be pointed to the great servant who came to seek and save that which is lost. Work this in our midst, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.